from verse number 8, Revelation 2 and verse 8, and we're continuing our series on John's letters to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. He wrote to the, the church of Ephesus, we read that last week, talked about how they left their first love, and what, what the letters are to the churches, they were real churches, by the way, they were real cities, real churches, and all of these problems were specific to them, but if you read the Bible for any length of time, you find that, that God is, yes, speaking to the people of the day, but he's also speaking to us. And, you know, they, they, Solomon wisely said there's nothing new under the sun. What they faced in the early church, we largely face today. Um, so we're, we're looking here tonight at Revelation, this morning at Revelation 2 and 8. And the angel, to the ch angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this time to be able to hear what you have to say to us, and we open our ears to hear what you have to say. God, break through every wall, every barrier, every yoke that would bind, that would hinder your word in Jesus' name, and let your word go forth and touch our hearts. Touch those who've joined us online this morning. Let your presence fill their homes, wherever they are. Lord Jesus, I pray your blessing on them and your hand to rest upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Persecution is a real thing. One thing you'll notice in this series is there's kind of a pattern uh, in the way the Lord talks to the churches. Oftentimes he commends them for something. He tells them, you're doing well in this area. And then often he turns to the area that they're, they're needing work in, that they're failing in, and sometimes offers them a warning and then a promise. And, uh, I mean, this is the pattern of, of, of Jesus, really. Uh, John told us in the book of John, chapter 1, that, that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth from Jesus Christ. And uh, what he was saying was the law, the Old Testament, was, was basically there just to point out the fact that we're all sinners and make lots of mistakes. But Jesus came to couple grace with truth. I mean, if you want to talk about having difficult conversations, that's the, the best pattern to use, grace and truth. Uh, you know, righteousness and peace, right? You can have all truth. And sometimes truth hurts. So if you mix a little grace in with the truth, it, it, you know, a little sugar helps the medicine go down, right? That, that old, uh, thank you, Julie Andrews, who made that reality. A little sugar helps the medicine go down. Um, and, and that's really what the pattern is here in the book of Revelation. There is, there is grace, what you're doing well. But there's also truth. There's also truth. 
And, and here we see for Smyrna, this is a kind of an interesting, one of the interesting churches because while Jesus has a lot of commendation to give them, there's not a whole lot that they're doing wrong. There's not, they seem to be doing well in a lot of areas. He's just trying to encourage them that there's something that, you know, they're still going to face tribulation and testing. And this is comforting because it, it shows us that even when we're doing well, that doesn't preclude us from persecution or testing or trial or tribulation. Those things are still on the docket for believers. Uh, you know, and someone might say, well, I thought I was doing so well. I was pleasing the Lord. Why is this happening to me? It's happening because the rain falls on the just and the unjust. There is, there is good and bad that happens to everybody. And persecution is a real thing. An indigenous pastor in Sri Lanka went out to start a work for the Lord. And he was trying to build an apostolic church in a very Hindu area in the recent, recent years. They didn't want his ideas. They didn't want his doctrine. They didn't even want him to pray for them to be healed of their sicknesses and none of these things. And he moved into town and was, was living in a small hut with his family. In the middle of the night, villagers who didn't want him there poured poison into the well of their little home. Someone in that group thankfully was gripped by conviction and came a little bit later, knocked on the door in the middle of the night to avoid being seen by the rest of the community and warned the pastor that the village had poisoned their well and they should not drink it for they would surely die and their children would die as soon as they drank the water. As a parent, I can only imagine the terror. This is not like you can just turn on the tap and run the water and, you know, you have an alternate source. You can't flush it out. Yeah, you can't crack open a bottle while they were in the middle of Sri Lanka in a, in a village. And, and they weren't welcome there. You can imagine being that pastor. You're there to do the work of God. You're there to do what God wants you to do and reach a community, a village of people that have no access to the Word of God, no access to the truth of God's Word. And so this local pastor found his way to the nearest telephone and called his, 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 his missionary that was covering him, Brother Prince Matthias, who is no stranger to Ontario and uh, often comes to Ontario to preach and minister and, and deputize to raise funds for the ministries that he's a part of. I actually called him and had a conversation with Brother Matthias. I wanted verification of this story. I'd heard this story, and I, I got him to confirm that these things were indeed true. And he, he, he got a phone call from this indigenous pastor in Sri Lanka and, and said, Brother, Brother Matthias, should I leave? Should my family? We cannot survive here without water. We need water. Should I, should I stop what I'm doing? And Maybe, maybe I should go to my neighbor and ask them for water, the one who warned us that our well was poisoned. And Brother Matthias quickly replied, do not go ask for water. Do not do this. You know the community and you know the culture very well. As soon as you get water from them, you are now under them. And you will be beholden to them for the rest of your life. In, in not so many words, you will be their slave. You will be beholden to them because you have come under their covering. 
They have rescued you, and so you will be responsible to them. They will have authority for you, over you and will define for you what you're supposed to do in this community. Don't do this. And you can, you can hear the anguish of this pastor. You can feel the, what do I do? How do I, how do I deal with this kind of persecution? How do I deal? I'm here to preach the gospel. I'm here to face this community with the life-giving message of Jesus and his love. And this is how I'm being repaid. And this is indeed what the Smyrna church was facing in their day. The second letter to the letter of the churches in Asia Minor was, was this one of this, to the city in Smyrna. Smyrna was a, a modernized city. It was what is today Izmir and is in fact one of the only cities of the seven cities mentioned here in Revelation that still is in existence in its original location. It's 35 miles north of Ephesus. It's currently called Izmir, and it's proud and beautiful city. Its coins were inscribed with the, the phrase, the first of Asia, beauty and size. There was many temples. A multiplicity of worship happened there in this culture. The Apollos, uh, Asipius, Aphrodite, Sibele, and Zeus dotted the landscape of this pagan city. And this is interesting because the culture of this day in, in all of these cities was very similar in that there was multiple gods worshipped. Multiple religions converged in, in certain locations. And even uh, the worship of the, of the Roman emperor was predominant in these areas. There was often temples built to honor the emperor of Rome. And they would worship in these places. And not only that, but every home had their little alcove of gods, personal family gods. You had the community gods, you had the national gods, and then you had your family gods. And it was, it was common for you to worship at multiple places, and it wasn't really a problem for them. The, the, the communities at this time didn't really even have a problem with the Jews because the Jews worshipped their god and and the Egyptians worshipped their God, and the, the Greeks their God, and the Romans their God, and you could have your gods, and you could even visit other churches, other temples. And, and as long as you, you know, paid respect to their God, you could worship their God and come back and worship your God, and no big deal. It created a, a harmony in the community of, uh, 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 of, of trade and commerce, because with every God you would need an idol. And for every idol you would need an idol maker whether out of wood or stone or silver or metals. And so trade was part of this economy. The, the, the disruption of Christianity, though, was pronounced because while Christians worshipped Jesus, which wasn't a problem. Now, now they, they thought the Jews were weird because the Jews only had one, while everybody else had 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, however many they wanted. The Jews were kind of weird, but they were weird in their own separate way. The Jews weren't interested in gaining converts. They weren't interested in pulling people into the synagogue. They were very cloistered and segregated and separated from the rest of the Gentile world. But the Christianity, however, was a disruptor to the whole situation. Because Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel not just to the Jews, but to the Jews and the Greeks and to everybody who is afar off, even as many as the Lord our God should call. 
Christianity would go into a community and lovingly reach and minister and care for and bring in. But there was a line in the sand that said when you come into the house of God, when you become part of the family of God, you leave behind the false gods and idols that you worshipped. And so literally, like in Ephesus, Smyrna was probably no different that the, the idol makers got angry with the Christians because the Christians disrupted their economy. When Christians came in, they would preach the gospel. People would get miraculously healed and converted and miracles and signs and people were baptized and filled with the Spirit and they began to leave their temples, stop paying their temple taxes and their temple offerings. They stopped bringing the offerings to the priests who, who operated the temples and the priests began to go hungry. And the, 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 the idol makers, the silversmiths and the, the stonemasons and the, the, the carpenters who made these idols weren't getting the regular amount a business they were used to and so they began to persecute this church because the church was not just worshiping their gods that was disrupting their gods. Smyrna was one of these locations and had all the ingredients for a hostile environment for the church because I'm here to tell you while the church is not into into redefining politics. The church wasn't interested in becoming the new emperor. In fact, I think one of the detriments to the church, one of the biggest blows to the church is when Rome legalized the church. When Rome stopped persecuting the church and brought the church in as its new official religion, that's where we see the decline of Christianity to the point where we get to 1500s and Martin Luther begins to, to come into the, 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 the church of the day, the Roman Catholic Church, and begin to realize that not even the priests read the Bible. I'm reading a biography on Martin Luther, who was a great reformer in Germany. And, and they would argue about things not like, you know, does Jesus love us? How do we get saved? But they would, they would literally argue for hours in their cloisters, in their monk monasteries about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. That was, that, that was the, the subject of their theological discussion. And, and, and we're all kind of rolling our eyes like, who cares? Who, who cares how many angels dance on the head of a pin? Do they even do that? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. But they, they did, the priests did not read the Bible. They read Aristotle and Plato, and they read what the church leaders of past years read, said about the Bible. But very rarely did they ever read the Bible. Martin Luther was one of the first that began to hungrily search the Word and Scriptures and found that indeed uh, that we're not saved by works, by uh, giving of our indulgences or doing communion, but we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But all of this was destroyed when the Romans accepted the church. See, persecution, while it affects the church, also refines the church. We don't know how really Smyrna began. It's not like many of the other churches where you can find tales of them in the book of Acts. But, but we know that Acts 19.10 says that they continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, and this is the start of the church in Smyrna. It's evident by the letter that John wrote in the book of Revelation that they suffered many things. 
John, the writer of Revelation, had a disciple whose name was Polycarp. That's, a, that's an interesting name. And he became the senior pastor, the bishop of the church in Smyrna. Polycarp was eventually martyred for his faith in Jesus. They put him on a stake, put wood around his feet, and set that wood aflame. But he did not burn. Miraculously, he stayed alive through the midst of his martyrdom. And in his last words, he said, in 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. Eventually, they, they, they martyred Polycarp with the sword because the flames could not burn him. A miracle, wonderful, but still terrible in all of this. Both Jews and Greeks interestingly enough, were among the greatest persecutors. It's funny. The Jews persecuted the church worse than the Gentiles. And you read it in the book of Acts, you'll often see it's the Jews who come in and stir up the Gentiles against the church. In one case, Paul and Barnabas were in a city and they began to pray for people and people were getting healed and the, the, the people began a bring a, a, an ox because they said, well, the gods have come down in human form to us and they, they begin to kill the ox to burn a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas and they, they said, no, stop, we are not gods. And they began to tell them about Jesus but in the crowd was a group of Jews who stirred the people up against Paul and Barnabas and they were attacked brutally and rushed out of that city. This happened oftentimes where the Jews were the instigators of persecution. See, it's an uncomfortable topic for us in North America because as a pastor, I've never had the threat of being burned alive. I've never had the threat of my family being in danger because I preached the gospel. My mom still tells stories when she was a girl of them throwing eggs at her church because they preached about receiving the Holy Ghost and being baptized in Jesus' name. I never grew up with that. That wasn't my reality. The North American church today knows very little, I think, about persecution. We have so many freedoms and benefits that we enjoy that it's hard to imagine what it was like for the early church to experience these things. Pastor, author, and speaker Francis Chan wrote of his experience in the underground church of China, and his words haunted me when I read them. He said, I was in China and visited an underground church gathering where I asked them about persecution. And each person who stood up and started sharing stories, these are Chinese people that are in the underground church in China, they, they begin to share stories of persecution, things they endured. Some of them had to hide in the walls because the government officials would come and check their homes. Some of them had to run from gunshots. And he said, but I wish you could hear the word they were sharing. Everyone was just laughing at it like it was a party. It sounded so insane to me hearing them laugh about being shot at. But it didn't phase them because they expected it. In their prayers, they prayed to God to take them into the most dangerous places. I want to suffer for you, they would say. I don't, I want to go to the most dangerous place. I want to suffer for you. I don't want a safe place. Please, I want to be counted worthy to die in your name that's what they prayed for. He said, if you have a group like that, how are you going to stop them? 
you have somebody with that kind of mentality, what exactly are you going to do to threaten them? They are an unstoppable force ready to take the hit and go right back into the battle. This is what the church was made for. Often found in the New Testament, this message of suffering is throughout the gospel. Jesus warned his church, his disciples. They didn't, he, he, Jesus didn't wait to talk the small top to the small group of senior disciples and disclose to them the fine print. No, he told the whole group of them when they would gather that, 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 that they would, God will bless you if you suffer for his namesake. In Matthew 5, 11, on his Sermon on the Mount to the masses, Jesus said, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. He said, be very glad for great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower... You must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of, of his Father and will judge the people according to their deeds. Philippians 1.29 says, For you have... Not, you've been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. 2 Timothy 2.3, endure suffering along with me, Paul said, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Timoth 2 Timothy 3.11 says, I know, you know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, but the Lord rescued me from all of it. And yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, I want to be clear about something. Being offended is not being persecuted. Being teased is not being persecuted. Being wronged by someone is not persecution. In all of these accounts and warnings of persecution, it's very clear the parameters of persecution is for the namesake of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5.11? He says, be happy when you are persecuted in the same way the ancient prophets were persecuted. Why were the ancient prophets persecuted? Because they spoke up and said, this is what the Lord God says to you. Repent, turn from your evil ways, turn back to the Lord, and he will heal you. He will restore you. Jesus said, you'll be persecuted because you are my followers. Now, sometimes people claim the, the, the title of persecution, but really they just, they come into work with a bad attitude, and they, they have a bad work ethic, and they're perhaps not as efficient as they need to be, and their boss gets onto them, and maybe their boss isn't the nicest person, and so they say, well, I'm, I'm being persecuted at my workplace. And I go, well, I've kind of seen your style, and I, I'm not sure that's really you're being persecuted. I think you might just need to 
you know, take some inventory on your own emotional health and choices. You might not really be, be persecuted. You might just be a little too aggressive or, you know, you might, well, I'm being persecuted for my faith. And the question is, well, how are you sharing your faith? And then the stories come out of the things that they say to people about how they live. And I'm, you know, that's probably not, you know, the Bible says grace and truth. And if you're going to err on the side of anything, you should probably err on the side of grace and, and, and keep working grace until you have the opportunity to share truth. That You know, it's, it's righteousness and peace. It's not, it's not just righteousness. You can be just righteous and bang the righteous part of the Bible. But if you don't have righteousness and peace, if you don't have peace and joy, guess what? You're not operating in the Holy Ghost because righteousness, peace, and joy come from the Holy Ghost. You've got to have all three working together. You've got to have grace and truth. You've got to have both working together. But persecution isn't always what, what people say it is. But persecution is when you are living the life that is pleasing God and you are sharing the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus. Then you are buffeted for your stand. You will have to take a stand, by the way, if you are a believer in Jesus. There's things in life that, that the world will push against you with its agendas, with its, with its uh, messages. And, and, and you don't have to stand and allow it to be pushed over you, you can take a stand for what you believe and what you feel is right in a graceful and kind and gentle way, but still take a stand. One thing that Jesus makes very plain, and Paul echoes it in Ephesians and throughout his writings to the church, is that humans are never the enemy. Humans are never... Look, listen to the letter that Jesus tells John to write the church in Smyrna. He says, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Jesus exposed what was going on behind the scenes of the people that were doing the persecuting. He didn't, he didn't tell them to, to, to not acknowledge the fact that it was the Jews doing the work, but he said, just remember, they're doing the work of the one that they follow. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Satan is behind this, guys. Remember that, that the devil is the one who is motivating the actions of the people that are persecuting you. It's not the individual. It's not the person. It's the spirit that's working behind the person. And then he said, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer because the devil will throw you into the prison. Now, it's, there wasn't a guy with the red cape and horns and a forked tongue that, that went holding a pitchfork that threw them into prison. It was humans. It was soldiers. It was guards. But Paul and John and Jesus uh, both echoed to the church, when you're persecuted for the namesake of Christ, uh, you are not being persecuted by flesh and blood. It's not flesh and blood that you wrestle against. There is a spiritual force that is working against what you are doing. History tells us that they had to change the guard that was looking after Paul on a regular basis because if he was given too much time with that particular guard, they would have been converted. 
They had to routinely change the guard on, on half hour and hourly basis because Paul got it down to a science how quickly he could break through and convert his guards to the faith. Why? Paul had a conviction. It's not them. It's the one behind them. That's why Jesus could pray as he was being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why are you saying, Jesus, that they don't know that they're brutally hitting and bruising and, and beating? Yes, there is a, an extent to they know what they're doing, but they don't know why. They, if they really knew whose face they were pummeling, if they really knew his intention to redeem them from their sin, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had a revelation, they would not do what they're doing. So Jesus said, I can pray for them. Father, would you forgive them? For they know not what they do. Now many people say Jesus forgave his enemies on the cross. I don't believe that. I believe Jesus prayed for them to be forgiven. And that prayer was answered on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 souls were baptized and filled and repented of their sins because it was 50 days later that Peter stood before the same group that cried, crucify him, and said, repent and be baptized. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? We hear that we've crucified the Lord of glory. What shall we do? Peter said, repent, turn away from your sin, be baptized in Jesus' name, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And, and 3,000 were added that day. 5,000 were added a few days later. And there was a great revival in Jerusalem because Jesus prayed a prayer of salvation for his enemies. Romans 12 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do that so that you can live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their head. Don't let evil conquer you, but do let conquer evil by doing something good. See, we, we suffer when we have an accurate view of eternity. And we are willing to suffer and to endure hardships as a good soldier when we have an accurate view of eternity. If you believe that God is a just God and he will recompense people for their actions, then when those who act against you because you're preaching the good news of Jesus. Notice, it's very specific. It's about being a follower of Jesus. You're persecuted not because you have a bad attitude, because you have a sour disposition. You're being persecuted because you, have a, you are a follower of Christ. You're trying to do what pleases God in a graceful and peaceful and joyful and loving way. It's when those things are, those boxes are ticked off and you're still being persecuted, you'll know that Jesus will repay every word, every lie, every wrongdoing done to you on those terms. You can pray for that person because you know that they're going to have to answer for everything they've done to persecute, to afflict the church, to work against the, the kingdom of God. Since we know that, 
we can pray for them like Jesus did and like Stephen did when he was being stoned and he prayed that God would forgive those who are lifting their hands against him. And it was Stephen's prayer, I believe, that caused Paul to get that road to Damascus calling from the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Stephen's prayer that set Paul on the road to redemption. It was Stephen's prayer that while Paul was persecuting him and killing him for his faith in Christ, it was Stephen's prayer that caused Paul to have a turning experience. See, you look at Jesus. Jesus suffered greatly for, for the good news of salvation. See, he was walking in humiliation as he walked that road up to the hill called Calvary. He was put in, the, in between two thieves and was crucified like a common criminal. But when we see him in Revelation 1, he is walking around clothed in garments of white with the golden belt. And instead of walking in the midst of thieves, he's walking in the midst of the church. When we see Jesus in his flesh, he was girded about his loins. He was uh, telling that he did not come to be ministered to, but to minister to others. He took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, bent down, and washed the feet of his disciples. But when we see him in Revelation, he's girded about the breast, signifying he is a, pring, a, a, a prince, a king, and a priest. He is wearing majesty garments, not those of a servant, because he wore the garments of a servant. He could now wear the garments of a king. As he was, he was stripped of those garments and made a spectacle to men, to demons, and to angels. But when we see him in the book of Revelation, he's seen in garments of glory, representing his glorious personage, his white hair, and his eyes and his, his, his whole demeanor is, is that of glorious wonder. As we saw him when he was crucified, he was crowned with thorns, telling us of those who bore the curse for our sins. And yet when we see him in Revelation, his hair is white, speaking of his glory and his eternity. As we see him in the, in the garden, we see those eyes losing their brightness because of death and closed under the load of sin. But when we see him in the book of Revelation, his eyes are of a flame of fire reminding us of his all-seeming power. As we see him in the garden and in, on the, the hillside of Calvary, his feet are nailed to a tree and blood is dripping from his brow. But as we see him in the book of Revelation, his feet are as burning, polished brass, telling us of his durability and his deity. As we see him in the garden, his voice is shushed by death and is put down to a low whisper because of what he's suffering. But when we see him in the book of Revelation, we see him with the voices of many waters, reminding us of the power of his word. What is the, what is the Bible trying to communicate to us that Death is not the end. Persecution is not final. If we endure the persecution for his name's sake, then we will too, like him, be crowned with glory and honor in the end. As he was, he was humbled, but as he is, he is glorified. So will the church be glorified one of these days. So what are we supposed to do, Brother Matthias? The pastor called. 
What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to not drink the water. We can't drink it. It's poison. We can't go to our neighbors, Pastor Matthias. What should we do? Brother Matthias said, I don't know, but let me pray and call you right back. So Brother Matthias hung up the phone and began to pray and talk to the Lord. And Brother Matthias says, I don't recommend this, but it's what I did. <laughs> I grabbed my Bible in desperation. I opened it to the first passage I saw. And I went like this. And my finger landed on the verse 2 Kings 2.21. And Elijah said, bring me a new bowl with salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went out to the spring that supplied the town's water. And he threw the salt in the well. And he said, this is what the Lord says. I have purified this water. It will no longer cause death or infertility. So he called the pastor back and he says, all I know is what I'm reading here and we'll do this by faith. Because the Bible says that when you drink any deadly thing, it shall not harm you. So he said, take a handful of salt and throw it into your well. Then stand around your well with your family and worship the Lord and declare this water is healed. Then what do I do, Brother Matthias? What should I do next? And Brother Matthias says, drink the water. You'll be fine. God declares it. And so the pastor grabbed his family and a handful of salt and went around the well. And no doubt the village, he did this in the middle of the day, the village peeked out of their windows and out of their huts to see what would happen. And the pastor did so, poured the salt in the well, and they stood around it and worshipped and prayed and then drank the water, each of them. And the village leaned out their doors waiting to see them twitch and fall and convulse on the ground. And they did not. They were fine. And the well was healed. And the, finally the, the community came a few hours later and they expected to find them dead in their hut, but they found them alive and well and doing fine. And they said, what is going on? We saw you gathered around your well. We saw you drink the water. What happened? And they said, we did not die because God has sustained us by his power. And revival broke out in that community. But that was not the end of the story. A few months later, a drought hit that area. And every well in that community dried up except one. And everybody in the town had to come and get water from the pastor's well, giving him dominion and authority over that whole community. God is able to work with us if we're not afraid of persecution, if we're not afraid to Endure suffering for the name of Christ. Now, what Paul said in his letter, and this is, this is the altar call for us today because likely nobody's going to poison our pipes in our homes. But where are we going to face persecution? We, said, we read it already today that if we are godly, we are going to suffer persecution. If we're taking up our cross and following Jesus somewhere, persecution is going to find its way into our life. Because whether you're in Sri Lanka or you're in Ajax, God, the devil doesn't want you to witness or tell others about Jesus. And this is the question. We have to take in, uh, stock. If I'm lacking, if my life is lacking in the scope of persecution, and I can't really reflect on when and how I've had to deal with it, suffering because I believe in Jesus or I'm preaching the gospel. I've got to ask myself, am I preaching the gospel to every creature? I've got to ask myself, am I being 
a strong enough light that would cause someone to turn from darkness to light and the devil have to push back on that in my life. And persecution comes in different ways here in North America. We feel the pressure of our agenda society pressing against us. Will we take a stand or will we fold? Will we bow to the age or will we take a stand against that thing in a gentle, peace-loving way? Are we going to tell others about Jesus? Are we active in reaching the lost to the degree that we face persecution? And I, nobody can answer that question but you and the Lord. So where, where are we at today? Are we living a life? And, and like I said, North America is funny. We are, the persecution we face here may be a totally different one than they face overseas. But is our life a reflection of Jesus enough that it's stirring up the adversary against us? Let's stand this morning. Jesus wrote to the church in Smyrna, listen to his words. He says, I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Maybe the question we need to ask ourselves as we pray, how much of a friend am I to the world? Am I a friend to those in the world or am I a friend of the world? Am I rich in this life but poor in my spirit? Am I rich in the things of this world and the things of this life but am I poor in the things of God? Maybe I need to have that switched. Jesus honored the poverty of Smyrna. They didn't have money or land or a lot of fancy things, but they had a richness in their walk with God. God said to them, don't fear what you're going to suffer. I'm going to do a great work through you. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We find a place of prayer this morning and take inventory of our walk with God. Take inventory of how, how, is there areas, Lord, where I need to follow you into danger? Am I afraid to witness because I'm afraid of the persecution? Am I afraid of what people might say? Don't let me be controlled by fear. Don't let me be controlled by intimidation. Lord, help me to mix grace and truth and live a life that shines your light in this world. Do people know that you can Heal them by my life. Do they know by my witness that you can touch them and change them and bring them into the kingdom? Am I living a life that sings your praise and honors you, Lord, in Jesus' name? Would you find a place of prayer this morning and begin to talk to the Lord as we sing and just carry this altar service, this time of consecration to God in Jesus' name? There is none like you, for no one else can touch my heart like you do, and I can search for all eternity long and find there is none like you. There is none like you. Jesus, help us to be a light. Oh, no one else can touch 
my heart like you do. Help me to follow you, Jesus. And I could search for all eternity long and find there is none like you. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. Take my hands and take my feet. Touch my heart, Lord, speak through me. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. Oh, if you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. So take my hands and take my feet. Touch my heart, Lord, speak through me. You can use anything, Lord, you can use me. 